Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that asks you to join in the debate. But then when you arrive, leaves and locks the door and now you're stuck inside by yourself and I don't have to hear your shitty opinions. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and it's been announced that the Prime Minister and Harry Bowser, Boris Johnson and his girlfriend are expecting a child. Of course they are. They always are. I'm sure every night they tell Number 10 Security to say they aren't in in case a kid comes knocking looking for child support from their estranged dad. Yes, it seems Boris Johnson's main plan to gain the youth vote is to make sure an entire generation will have splurged from his own loins. Is this another example of Johnson bluffing his way through a withdrawal agreement or is it a carefully conceived plan? What is clear is that after insisting the public don't want to know about his personal life when it comes to the police being called after concerns of potential domestic violence or how many children he already has, it turns out the Prime Minister think the public definitely want to know that he's going to have at least one offspring he'll be able to account for. Oh, and that he's going to marry former Tory press officer and star of Channel 4's game face, Carrie Simmons. Because when it comes to maybe visiting flood victims or just well doing anything, it seems he's always otherwise engaged. How much do you want to bet that his paternity leave will occur just as something else awful happens in the UK and Boris will insist that he can't attend to the scene of a destruction caused by a giant radioactive lizard as he's far too busy changing nappies while perhaps snap him bonking an intern at Checkers? Actually, that's not fair, as maybe it's this sixth or possibly seventh or maybe even eighth child, whichever it is, and third marriage that will finally make Johnson understand the responsibility it takes to be both a family man and prime minister. Both duties are up until now he's only really enjoyed the inception of before wandering off and assuming they'll be okay to fend for themselves. Simmons, while now PR for Oceana, a sea conservation organisation, which explains why she's keen to help save a large wet mammal who keeps getting itself into dangerous waters, has supposedly been at odds with the Prime Minister's special advisor and turtle kid from Disney's Robin Hood. But hey, maybe this baby news is a truce and a way to facilitate Cummings. <laughs> I'm sorry about that one. No, I'm really, I'm really sorry. Ish. Is this news that anyone actually gives a shit about? Well, no, apart from Home Secretary and original Sally Skellington, Pretty Patel, who can only be concerned that thanks to Johnson, the UK is about to gain another economically inactive drain on resources that doesn't speak English and has a dad born on foreign soil. I'm sure she'll try to have baby Johnson on a plane out of the UK ASAP. 
Patel has had issues to deal with this weekend other than congratulating her boss on excelling at making sure young people are fucked. The Home Office's top civil servant and child dressed as Arthur for World Book Day, Sir Philip Rutnan, resigned after 33 years of being in the post, saying that he'd become the target of an orchestrated campaign against him. And that's pretty serious as we all know that orchestrated campaigns can of course lead to violence. I'm also a bit sorry about that one. Just a bit. Rutnam accused Priti Patel of being in charge of it all, saying that she accused him of briefing the media against her, which he says is false. And of course it must be. Civil servants are meant to be non-political. It's in their job title for crying out loud, otherwise they'd be called discourteous servants. Rutnam also claims the government tried to pay him off to keep him quiet, but he rejected it. A wise move as money promised by this lot is likely not to emerge for five to six years and then be halved due to the rising costs of HS2. After Sir Phil's resignation and plans to sue the government, one of Patel's former aides at the Department of Work and Pensions claims she received a £25,000 payout after saying she was also bullied by the then Minister for Employment. Apparently, Patel told the staff member to get lost, an instruction usually safe for facts, and the bullying led to her trying to take her own life, which is very serious. The Prime Minister has backed Patel, saying that she's a fantastic Home Secretary. Of course she is, which is why she's a terrible human being. I mean, those are the exact skills she needs to head up a department that the report into the Windrush scandal called inherently racist, but the term disappeared from a later draft. Probably because the Home Office is keen for everything and everyone to have a lighter tone. While concerns about Priti Patel's conduct are growing, they aren't spreading anywhere near as fast as the coronavirus, though it is similarly also making people unwell when it comes into contact with them. There have now been 40 cases in the UK, with the four latest being found in people who'd just travelled to Italy, where it's been quickly pastered round. Okay, that's the that's the last really awful one, I promise. <laughs> the government's main advice is for people to scrub their digits while singing happy birthday twice, which may be because they're used to celebrating every time they wash their hands of something particular potentially dangerous. The other suggestion from Health Secretary and Stupid Grape, Matt Hancock, is to sing God Save the Queen twice, presumably because that's the only thing that could protect the 93-year-old monarch if she caught the coronavirus. Hancock has been blocked by Downing Street from travelling to an EU meeting about the coronavirus due to concerns that it may hinder their trade talks. Yeah, take that EU, we're letting our citizens die to own you. If everyone in the UK is dead, they won't be able to buy your produce and then we won't have to negotiate anything. Ha! But that is the sort of trading hardball the government seem to be playing as EU negotiations begin. An international trade secretary and woman that were she replaced with a cardboard cutout, it'd be weeks before anyone noticed, Liz Truss, has insisted that they will not trade away the UK's fishing waters no matter what. And that's a smart move, with the recent floods meaning that doing it could lead to Dutch trawlers mooring halfway into Wales. EU negotiations started after Brexit negotiator and the man who looks like he's collapsing in on himself, David Frost, apparently had a patriotic full English breakfast, because nothing says tough talks like the possibility of a coronary heart attack. If he's a real Brit and wants to properly represent us in the talks, he'll also down six pints of bitter before everyone and then only enter the left-hand side of the room while pointing and shouting loudly at things he wants before saying something racist, being sick over himself and passing out. That's the way we get a proper deal. Meanwhile, the government have also published their 180-page document on its negotiating strategy with the US, which is a very smart move, as that's at least 179 more pages than US President and human crock shoe Donald Trump would be able to manage reading. The UK's red lines for any deal are that food standards will not be lowered and that the NHS is not on the table, though there was no comment on if it would be sold under the table or if the table would be sold first, meaning the NHS could just be passed over without any tabular obstacles in the way. 
Liz Truss said that if they don't get what they want from the EU or US trade deals, then they will just walk away. Because our other strong negotiating skill is convincing the other side that if they don't do what we want, we'll hurt ourselves for attention. Then again, maybe the government are much smarter than we think, and this is all part of their coronavirus plan to shut off the UK from the rest of the world until the pandemic dies down, and then we could trade what we like, as everyone else will be too weak to stop us. In other news, the report from the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse said that Westminster turned a blind eye to allegations and ignored victims. But that's of no surprise to anyone, because when have British politicians ever really cared about the little people? The report contained a lot of criticism of former Liberal leader and weather-eroded ermine Lord David Steele for failing to investigate allegations against Liberal MP, massive paedophile in many senses, and member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Sir Cyril Smith. As a result of the report, Steele resigned from the Liberal Democrats and his position in the Lords, saying that he was quitting to avoid distress for his family, which is nice and considerate when he was quite happy for Smith to cause quite a lot to other peoples. Conservative MP and rescue chimp James Grundy has had to apologise after footage was revealed of him exposing himself in a pub at a private event in 2007. To be fair to him, it was before he was even elected as a Conservative councillor and it's nice to see a Tory sympathise with all the voters who just want to get the Conservative pricks out. In the US, it is Super Tuesday this week as 14 states, American Samoa and Democrats abroad all prepare to vote for their preferred Democratic presidential candidate. There are now only five people standing after Lego version of Christian Slater, Pete Buttigieg and woman who always looks like she's about to try and sell you life insurance, Amy Klobuchar, have both dropped out of the race and they are expected to back the man who always looks like the victim of a mysterious radioactive attack, Joe Biden. This puts Biden in current second place in terms of delegates, behind Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, Bernie Sanders, and dedicated school librarian Elizabeth Warren, who's a distant third. Businessman and proof money can't stop you looking like a withered ball sack, Michael Bloomberg hasn't started running yet, but will do on Tuesday, just in case America decides the problem with Trump was that he was the wrong kind of racist, sexist Republican billionaire. There is also Tulsi Gabbard, who has no delicate backing, and the only thing going for her seems to be that she's the youngest candidate, so there's a chance the others will keel over before it gets to November, though she is being urged to drop out. By the end of the week, we'll have a clearer picture just who will take on Trump in the US elections, but all polls suggest whoever it is, they'll be likely to win over voters on account of, well, not being Trump, a man that is currently insisting the coronavirus is under control, but only because he's cut so much health funding, not everyone can actually get tested for it. I guess it still counts as beating coronavirus if all these untested people are just getting sick from some other unknown coughing illness. If ignorance is bliss, why does Trump always seem so angry? And lastly, in Bristol on Friday, eco-munchkin Greta Thunberg addressed a crowd of over 15,000 people as part of a climate change rally and school strike, attracting lots of criticisms from Conservative MPs who said children should be in school, forgetting that that's not how strikes work, and that many of the cuts to the education service mean that their schools would be closed on a Friday afternoon anyway. There has also been anger that the site of the rally, College Green, was so churned up by the people being there that all the grassy spaces have turned to mud, and apparently that's quite hypocritical for a climate rally. You can't please people, can you? I mean, not only were those young people standing up for a better future, but they were also actively shunning blades. Hey, 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 Parpol Broads, how are you? Coronavirus free, I hope. Um, I'm very tempted to spend the next few weeks shaking people's hands and then muttering, oh shit, before looking at them and saying, oh, uh, don't worry, uh, it's nothing, I'm sure it'll be fine. Of course, I wouldn't do that, it's mean, and no one wants to get ill, uh, unless like me, you could really do with some time off. It does sound nice, doesn't it, lying in bed, insisting on not going outside or seeing anyone. Essentially, the way to defeat the virus is how I've lived every winter since I hit my mid-30s. Take that, socialites. Now all I need is a disease that can only be cured by eating crisps 
crisps and shouting fuck off at the news and I'll feel like I've been right all along. If the pandemic gets really bad and the only people who will survive are the antisocial ones, how will we ever find out who else is around? We won't talk to each other, we'll never know, we'll just stay indoors forever. Hmm, problems. I do also like the idea of really stressing to everyone how terrifying the coronavirus is until everyone is so scared that uh, they all stay indoors and then I can get all the bargains at the supermarket like a hero. To plan, isn't it? To plan. And well, even if you are bedridden, and I can't imagine how painful it is being ridden by a bed, they're often quite heavy, then I'm glad you've tuned into the show yet again. Um, big thank you this week, in particular, to Louise and Will for the lovely Apple Podcast reviews. Uh, Will saying that he was encouraged to do it by my um, agent, uh, who you heard calling out for reviews and donations on last week's show. And I was going to ask her to do it again, but uh, she's gone to bed this week, so she won't be plugging things for me this time. But if Mini Do Yeb is the deciding factor in getting this show your sweet, sweet words of support on Apple Podcasts or wherever else does them reviews, then I'll make sure I interrupt her important agent work of singing um, Let's Go Fly a Kite, but with the words Let's Go Fly a Bum, uh, and I'll ask her to help with the show again. That is genuinely something she's been singing. Let's Go Fly a Bum up to the highest um. I don't know. I don't understand. She's actually developed some Darren Brown type skills in the last few weeks that are properly terrifying me. Basically, she asks for something, but she mumbles it like, I have a chocolate. And then I don't really hear. And then I'll ask, you want a chocolate? And then she'll reply with, "Okay," as though, well, if I've asked and suggested it, it would be really rude not to. I've fallen for it every single time. So goddamn devious. I am terrified of her getting older and just winning all the time. Um, I definitely plan to try that on adults, though. Uh, hopefully, I'll get some free crisps. Um, thank you also this week to Adrian for joining the Patreon and to Anne-Marie for the Kofi donations, which are really, really appreciated. And should you wish to chuck me a pound or three on patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or kofi ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, then please do that. I won't stop you. There'll be no resistance here uh, to you giving me your hard-earned money. Far from it, I will encourage it. So, in fact, if you need a positive response or just some encouragement in your life for any reason, maybe just a feel good feel better about yourself um i will do that for you you know uh, for money uh, that seems fair right um I've got nothing to plug this week, really, but if any of you are going to see Frankie Boyle at the Soho Theatre on the 10th, 11th, 17th, 18th or 19th of March, then I will be his support act yet again, uh, saying many of the jokes that you hear on here, but live and from my face. I'm not doing the 12th, as I'll be in deepest Yorkshire shouting at children, which is important and necessary for the country. Um, if you haven't signed up to my mailing list, you can now find it quite easily on tnndoyab.co.uk, and I'm going to be sending out lots of details of all the gigs and all the other stuff I do on that. Uh, I send out a monthly email, and the March one I'll get around to doing at some point this week so please do um and also i am on the totally unprepared politics podcast uh which is hosted by jack and ada and is often uh really good fun and i've done that again this week i'm on there quite regularly but if you like to hear me talking about uh we talk about joe biden and we talk about eu trade negotiations and lots of other things that i have not remotely prepared about uh whatsoever so do check that out too it's on all the usual podcast places if you would like more of my noise in your ears um on this week's show i'm speaking to uh laurie montpellat from the running me trust and class think tank about what working class means in 2020 plus a look at just whether or not the uk is really prepared for a pandemic which you should listen to while indoors and not touching anyone not even yourself stop it that's disgusting who do you think you are james grundy what does the term working class mean to you are you already envisaging a flat cap wearing market trader shouting cockney slang at passers-by, drinking excessive cups of tea and playing the piano? Or maybe a miner covered in coal wrestling a pig while eating a pasty? I mean, if you're doing either of those things, my first question to you is, how are you listening to this podcast in the 1970s? 
Or is working class in 2020 simply defined as someone who doesn't change their accent when builders are around? A lot of the general election last year was focused on who could win over the working class voter, or more specifically, the Workington Man, a male of the species from a specific area of Cumbria who is over 45, doesn't have a degree and enjoys rugby. You know, that classic type that every single one of you knows at least 400 blokes just like it. Except in Workington, where many residents were quoted to say that the Workington Man was a stupid southern idea that they keep laughing about. These notions that commentators have that only people in London go to coffee bars, the sort of thing you'd only say if you also referred to hip-hop as noise from shouty talky men or smartphones as witchcraft, are the sort of opinions you'd only have if you'd never actually travelled outside of your own home or were so desperate for media appearances you'd just roll with any old brain vomit. Normal people only eat pie and mash, don't you know? And that's why Brexit won't matter as we only need potatoes and meat and all we care about is making sure immigrants don't come here and sneakily put vegetables in them or try and revive us when we're in hospitals suffering from our inevitable heart attacks. So what does working class actually mean in 2020 when whole age groups can't afford a home but can afford um, avocados, which are obviously the same cost? Are the white working class being failed and does the lack of mention of working class groups of any other race or ethnicity mean that they're being treated so well that neither they or the government fancy mentioning it just in case everyone else gets jealous? Is Workington, with the least diverse population in the country and one that's ageing at twice the rate of everywhere else, where politicians should be basing all their policies on, or will that just lead to a country of conservative voters forever? Oh. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, I see it now. More importantly, what about those of us in the rest of the country who just really like pie and mash? This week, I spoke to Laurie Montpellat at the Runnymede Trust and Class Think Tank, who have recently released a report called We Are Ghosts, looking at race, class and institutional prejudice, as well as just who identifies as being working class in today's day and age. Laurie was, up until they moved jobs a week ago, a research analyst for both of the think tanks, Runnymede and Class, and they co-authored the report. So I asked them all about who the working class are now, if racialising class structures is remotely helpful to anyone, and if I'm still allowed to eat pie even though I live in London. Just to say that I spoke to Laurie while they were in their office, so there's a lot of um, ambient office background noise, including someone who at some point types really loudly. I'm assuming they were hacking out a really very angry email. It's proper, it's proper like smacking. Sounds like they're punching the keyboard. Personally, I think it adds to the ambience, you know, the beautiful ambience of an office. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy. Here's Laurie. I suppose the first question I want to ask really is, uh, and if it's answerable, who are the working class in 2020? What does it mean to be working class in today's UK? Well, I think for many of us, that conversation has become very, very confusing over the years. Um, And what we've surely seen since Brexit is like the resurgence of the idea of class just back straight at the centre of the political agenda. So we've started talking about class a lot more, which I think is is actually really great and really important. Um, but we've, our public conversation has tend to talk about class in a specific way. We've been fed a caricature of a working class person who is male, who is white, who is Brexit voting, who lives in the north of England, um, who is a bit racist. And it's very interesting to think about what that caricature usually erases. And um, in our own work on race and class across the Runnymede Trust and the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, um, we've done this big research um, interviewing people who come, who basically come from backgrounds that aren't privileged backgrounds, people who don't come from money, um, from all sorts of walks of life. And it was really interesting interviewing basically 78 people about their experience of, of how their background impacted their lives, um, that there was quite 
in a way a fracture between their understanding of what class meant and of what being working class meant and their own experience of disadvantage. And so I think we have a public conversation that often thinks, often talks about being working class as something that's a bit cultural. And many people that we spoke to would think about, oh yeah, working class is, you know, if you have a construction company, working class is, you like going to the pub and have shepherd's pies. And some people, um, people we spoke to who definitely, you know, didn't come from middle class backgrounds, wouldn't, wouldn't think of themselves as working class because they felt like they didn't fit into that you know, that, that kind of culture, that kind of like imaginary of, of being working class. Um, but then what people we spoke to, like across a range of backgrounds, people of color, um, white people, older people, younger people, men, women, what people spoke about was the exper their experience of not having that safety net, of knowing that if something happens in life, if there's, if there's an issue with their housing, if there's an issue with their job, there's no backup. Um, and and constantly having to, to face that precariousness. People spoke about their experience of not feeling like their voice is heard um, in politics and that their voice is heard when they try and access services and when they try and access institutions. People spoke about prejudice um, and I guess having that kind of like stigma attached onto them, whether because of their race, uh, because of where they live, because of you know the kind of accents that they speak with, or um, you know the um, the way they dress, um, and that again across people you know from a wide range of backgrounds, migrant-born, British-born, white people, people of color, older, younger, um, and so we kind of captured our own definition in a way of of what being working class meant um, in 2020. Talking to people, we captured that using four P's: um, precariousness, power place and prejudice and it's kind of like a wheel in a sense with these four p's that help us understand um, that we absolutely need to talk about class and we absolutely need to talk about what it means to be held back because of your background um, but we need to do it in a way that makes it very clear that you don't have to fit into a specific cultural um, image to to be able to speak about that experience which is an experience of injustice and an experience of um, I guess, you know, working hard like most of us to to build a life for yourself and access resources and facing hurdles that other people don't have to face simply because of where you're born um, and then the family that you're born into and um, and how society perceives you and the stigma that may be attached to that. Um, and so I guess like the short question to your the short answer to your question, who is the working class in 2020 um, and what factors are part of someone's class identity? and uh, access to opportunities, I would say these four P's actually are, are a really helpful way to think about that. It's, um, it's the sense of yeah, not having access to power, this lack of voice in the public debates. So many people have been, um, have been shut out of, of, um, of uh, the conversation about um, politics when we look at just like what Westminster has looked like for many years. Um, it's a sense of precariousness, there's no safety net, um, you don't have as much room to make mistakes because, you know, the bank of mom and dad isn't behind you if you make mistakes. Um, it's prejudice, whether because of the way you look, the way you speak, the way you dress. Um, and another thing that people spoke about a lot was, yeah, uh, a loss of community space in the face of gentrification, actually, because we spoke to people in London, and so it was people's sense of being pushed out of their neighborhoods, um, you know, 
cost of life rising and people feeling like they just don't have space anymore to just be and exist. Um, and so these are the challenges that that I that I think we need to be to be talking about a lot more. Um, and some people would call that being working class. Some people may call that something else. But at the end of the day, yeah, these are the challenges I think um, we need to to make room for in our public conversation. That's really fascinating, and I think if if that is you know if if you are we are classing that as working class in twenty twenty, a lot more people would be working class than they might realize because i mean you know it's sort of in in today's day and age where where benefits are much harder to access people with disabilities and now or you know would automatically be working class i know a lot of people that have not got a safety net anymore and are struggling to pay rent or you know constantly on the edge of that so does that do you think now working class kind of covers a much wider group than we might realize yeah i think i think that may definitely be true um i think working class at the end of the day it's it's a label it's a tool to help us understand reality and to help us understand the challenges that that people may may be facing right now. Um, And in that sense, especially after 10 years of austerity, where basically government has put a big strain on the resources that so many of us just need to go by in life, many more people have been robbed from that safety net. Um, It means there's there's no longer enough housing to allow you to to have that flat, although you're like, you know, you know, you're on a teaching assistant salary and you basically can't afford to live in this neighborhood that you've lived in all your life. Or, um, yeah, it's people facing now that precariousness because there has been cuts um, on their disability benefits or it's people having now to rely on food banks because they were relying on some form of support that's no longer available. But it's also like, you know, things like kids um, no longer having access to that community center um, because it closed down down the road and they don't live in the kind of family that can just pay for them to go do tennis or whatever. Um, and all of that, all of that means it's, 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 a, it's a stretch. It's um, a restraint onto like the space that people have to simply be and live their lives and try and, um, and basically try and, and thrive and think about what it is that they want for themselves. It's, yeah, I think it's a really good way to put it just like that absence of a safety net when you don't come from, a background that gives you that safety net, and in that sense, I think it's 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 less important to to know who is working class and who isn't than it is important to look at um, what are these injustices that we are all um, that we're all facing, and that so many of us are seeing, you know, like shaping our lives and shaping what we have, what we what we think we should have access to that we in fact, don't have access to anymore. And I mean, what's fascinating about that is a lot of the political conversation lately or political narrative has been about reaching the white working class. And as you mentioned, there was a sort of stereotypical idea of they're often in the north and, you know, they're often a certain work for a building firm or whatever. Um, But, you know, as you've mentioned, it's about lack of safety and that affects an awful lot of people. So is there any reasonable basis for kind of making race and class separate issues, um, you know, or, or kind of separating class into racial groups and what effects does it have when the kind of narrative around class is racialized like that i think there are several dangers around the idea of a white working class narrative um and the main issue with it is that it fuels division between groups who would otherwise have actually a lot in common in terms of their interest and where they're positioned in relation to the establishment um and so as i was saying we have we have that caricature of during the election, we're talking about the idea of a Workington man. Um, so 
very exclusionary definition of what working class is in a sense and what's what is happening with that with that caricature um i think to understand what's what's going on with it we can even look back at at brexit and how the conversation around that working class that white working class figure started growing uh, more and more around the referendum campaign and how it was used um by by, by the right and the far right um as well but also sometimes used also on the left um and it was the idea that we had forgotten a specific part of Britain um, that we then that we then labelled um, the white working class, and that 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 constituency needed to be placed as the primary deserving constituency of political attention. Now, um, I absolutely believe that there are there are inequalities um, in the UK, and that there are parts of the country that have definitely been held back. Um, in terms of just because of how resources have been spent, and that's definitely an, injust an injustice that needs to be addressed, especially like, you know, you don't have the same opportunities if you live in London and, and if you don't, um, just because of, you know, how, how much resources are like concentrated in this place. Um, but what's happened with that is that we then had a government, um, and Theresa May's government basically, um, after that, referendum that was able to say things like we want to prioritize um we want to prioritize working families and you know people working around the clock and people struggling uh, to make ends meet and at the same time you had that same government who could say things like we want to make uh, britain a really hostile environment for immigrants um and i think we need to think about two other moments in our public debate to unpick what's going on with that statement and with these statements in a way, um, we have to think about Grenfell, um, what happened in June um, 2017, the tragedy of the Grenfell Tower fire and people who lost their life basically because of a system placing um, saving resources over the importance of centering uh, people's dignity and people's rights to safety. Um, and are these people, you know, the working families that Theresa May was was addressing in that speech that she did as as a, as as a prime minister in June? And at the same time, we've had over these same years, we've had Windrush as well. Um, many of these people have been working what you would call working class jobs um, for many, many years before basically being put on planes and removed from this country, um, which is, again, an, another horrific tragedy, are these people not the working families that Theresa May um, was, was addressing, you know, when, and, and all political parties really, when, when they talk about um, the need to, to prioritize the working class, and especially when it's framed as being the white working class. And I think what it does is, is that it, it creates this idea that there's a specific, a specific pocket of working class that's more deserving than the other ones. And what that does is that it justifies policies that make all groups worse off. So by being able to say that there is a particular group that deserves to be treated better, you can then justify policies that cut support across the board. Um, and that's what we've had with austerity, in a sense, um, to have austerity. And if we look back to um, the government we had under Thatcher, even um, the idea that, you know, 
everyone had to aspire to be middle class now and everyone could pull themselves up by the bootstrap and all the demonization of being working class that that happened in in that in that period all of that served a purpose it served the purpose of putting in place these policies that were going to cut the safety net um, and it was the attack on social housing it was the attack on unions without that discourse you couldn't put in place these policies. And I think what we have today is very similar in a sense. Um, we have this discourse um, that celebrates an exclusionary working class, um, often around that caricature that I've described, so that we can keep justifying policies that in fact cut support for the people who don't have the privilege of that family safety net, of coming from money, of of, of coming from a, from a comfortable um, background. And and I think that's that's what's really scary about it, um, really. And and that's what it's harmful for all of us, whether you know you you identify as a working class person who is white, or you work in class, um, and you're a person of color. Um, it's very scary that that politicians would want to prioritize, you know, a specific subgroup, um, because we know what purpose it serves. And then obviously, what it does as well is that it justifies discrimination and and ongoing racism towards. Uh, minorities and the idea that their class, the kind of class injustice that they face, is not um, is not as important and is not as legitimate to take into account, which is obviously just um, yeah false, untrue, and violent. Um, and it recreates this idea that you know if certain people um, are facing injustices, um, is and and they aren't you know the white working class, then you know. It's this idea that they're just less deserving uh, than these other people, and again, like there is there is a very long, a long tradition of of violence um, when when we make a specific group that is facing disadvantage more deserving than others, um, often to basically yeah, justify justify policies that make it worse for all of us. What's really interesting is a few years ago, we had a real demonization of all people that were working class. You know, we had shows like Benefit Street and we had that whole sort of slackers and shirkers narrative. And that demonization now seems to have, as you've mentioned, kind of become a, a racist demonization and a sort of blaming of people that weren't born in the UK or, or people that have emigrated here or whatever. Um, is that then affecting the 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 way in which political policies are having because from what you're discussing people who aren't being demonized are still very much being affected by a lack of safety net yeah absolutely i think um even if we could argue that there is less overt demonization of of working class people for being working class uh, especially since brexit and since we had that shift and you know class really coming back front and center in the political conversation. We do have less of that, less like overt demonization of, of working class people for being working class. But I think um, we really shouldn't erase all of the violence that that has done anyway, like over the years, and how these shows, like the people who have watched these shows, still carry, um, you know, whatever they've absorbed from these shows or whatever they've absorbed from just living in a society that is structurally classist or that, you know, that structurally naturalizes and takes for granted these these hierarchies between people and the idea um, that if you if you if you work in class, it's because, um, you know, you haven't worked as hard or you aren't as good as people who come from different backgrounds. And so I think it's really important not to like erase that violence and the way like people still carry that with them, you know, when they try and like enter a workplace. Um, and don't come from the same background as other people or like try and go to uni and feel really alienated because 
they're the only person in that space who's ever had to do a cleaning job to get there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now I think, yeah, what's, what's really important to think about is, is not just about like the prejudice and, and, and the demonization as such. Um, it's important to think about how these words and how these prejudice, whether class prejudice, whether racial prejudice or um, immigration, migrants, uh, groups related prejudice, how that fuels um, specific outcomes for people. And it's like words and prejudice in a way is the fuel into that machinery of oppression um, and into that machinery of, of policies and the people who who are responsible for putting in place policies um, that have affected um, disadvantaged groups most harshly are people who don't really know, oftentimes, who don't know what it's like to, to face that disadvantage, um, who don't know what it's like not to have a face to net, like the people um, who are in charge of, of, of um, doing policies in this country are overwhelmingly from the same backgrounds, going to the same private schools, being educated in the same ways, hanging out with the same groups of people, and um, and very much having been shaped by that prejudice themselves and this idea that the background that they come from, um, you know, that I guess this 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 contempt, this class contempt, this sense of being better than, um, and I think we've we've seen that in several comments from. Uh, from policymakers over the years and this lack of understanding actually of like of what it's like um, to live without that safety net and their prejudice and their idea that you can just pull yourself up by the bootstrap and 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 manage basically you see that translated into how policy is written and it trickles all the way down to how people experience the way services are delivered and this is idea that you can dust yourself off and try again um, if your if your benefits are cut, you can just you know try again and find a job, and it's just this complete disconnection with people's reality of what it's actually like to have to make these choices. Um, and if I if I can just I guess like give an example of how like prejudice, um, how that institutional prejudice, as we call it in the in the We Are Ghost reports, um, manifests. It's um, it's it's yeah it's the it's the inability to to accept that inequalities and structural disadvantage is real and that if you come from a specific background you'll struggle a bit more you'll struggle a lot more oftentimes um, and that inability to understand that means that policymakers will often focus on the behaviors of groups um, and the idea that you know there's just issues in certain families and so we've had programs like the troubled families programs launched in 2012 after the um, riots, uh, the 2011 riots, and it was the idea that, um, you know, we just needed to turn turn around the lives of, of these uh, families who, who are quote unquote troubled um, without being able to make the links between, you know, what happened with these riots in 2011 and, and people's genuine anger in the face of a system that just um, is not able to, to meet, um, you know, to meet, their needs um, and to to give them access to to, to just the most basic things um, and to to give them access to yeah to I guess like a decent um, decent chances in life and well this program like um, was was yeah very unsuccessful um, by just academic accounts of it. Um, and, and wasn't, yeah, because it was focusing on, on, on people's behavior and the idea that people just had to behave differently. And there's, there's a lot of arrogance in that. Um, there was also a comment from, 
um, Victoria Atkins um, in 2018, who she was talking about knife crime and she said that she was suggesting that moms should just check, you know, in their kitchen drawers um, that all the knives are there and that somehow this would be a solution. <laughs> that was her tip in the face <laughs> of knife crime and it, it shows just the ignorance, the blatant ignorance in the face of all of the challenges um, that people have had to face because of 10 years of austerity, um, because of 10 years of, of uh, resources and access to, to, yeah, a safety net being denied to them. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's the way that prejudice inevitably, you know, if you socialized in, in, in a particular way, you'll, you'll absorb it. Um, and there's not even shame to have around that. It's kind of just reality. You absorb it and that then gets absorbed into policies. And then people have to face the prejudice, not just because people will say things to them, but in the very way services will be, will be delivered and the very way they will experience, um, you know, that contempt through, through being on the front line of that, of that machinery, um, of, of policy and of um, institutional prejudice. I don't know how um, clear that is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, we'll be back with Laurie in a minute, but first... As someone who's regularly failed to go viral, I'm fairly certain I won't get the coronavirus, even though I'm really trying as I could do with two weeks off. Positive cases of the virus, by which I mean people that have it, not people who've had a really happy outcome because of it, leapt up to 40 in the UK over the weekend. And that might not sound like much because, uh, well, it isn't. But with it already spreading very quickly across the globe, affecting people, workplaces, events and the stock markets, any pandemic is something to be wary of, especially if, in a country like the UK, the health service is already stretched to its limits, no one likes to wash their hands properly, and it's very hard to tell if you've got it because having trouble breathing just applies to every time lots of us got the stairs too quickly. Okay, so maybe that last one is just me. So this week, with an attempt to spread information rather than bugs, here's a few quick answers to some of the questions this new flu has coughed up. 
The coronavirus's official name is COVID-19, which unexcitedly stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, which is so last year. It's not the first coronavirus that has existed, and it's unlikely to be the last, as its name simply means that it's a disease that comes from mammals or birds, because nature is sick of our shit and it wants you to know about it. SARS was another big coronavirus, as was MERS, which was lesser known but did fairly well in The X Factor 2009. Unlike in the movies, where you know it's one specific really pissed off monkey, no one has a clue exactly where COVID-19 started, but most of those who were initially infected worked or shopped at the Hunan seafood market in the centre of Wuhan. But before you go out shouting at whales or accusing an otter of sneezing on a fish or something, it might take a while to find out exactly where it started, if we ever do. But look, otters can look really shifty, so definitely do a swear if you see one. So far, an estimated 87,000 people have the virus across the world. And while it can cause pneumonia, coughs, a fever, and if I get it, loads of moaning about really how awful it is and why won't everyone just look after me and bring me soup, it doesn't seem to be all that dangerous on the scale of things. Although I definitely will say it is, if I can get people to bring me soup. The current mortality rate is about 2% in the area of China where the outbreak started, and 1% everywhere else. Normal unimpressive why do you even bother flu has a mortality rate of under 1%, so it's worse than that. But SARS had a 10% mortality rate, and you might remember... No, actually, you probably won't. I mean, really, it was over in a few weeks, and it only lingered as a terrible joke for something to say you had if you did a sneeze. Obviously, people with health conditions need to be careful, but let's face it, if you have conditions, you'll probably spend so long on the phone to 111, you'll be dead before the end of the call. So maybe just best to stay indoors, avoid all people, and consequently probably have a really lovely few days where no one gets in your way, and you don't have to get an over-expensive train where you pay tons of money to smell someone's armpits. Washing hands is a good way of stopping it spreading because COVID-19 is an enveloped virus and soap and water can destroy the outer fat layer and kill the virus. Plus, if you sing happy birthday while doing it over and over again in a public bathroom, no one will go near you as you'll sound like a fucking psychopath and they'll fear for their lives. Why am I mentioning any of this on a politics podcast? This is all about sickness, isn't it? Well, firstly, because the virus, should it continue to spread, might actually cause several countries to plunge into recession. As sick leave grows, events such as the Olympics might have to be cancelled, people aren't travelling and the financial markets continue to care very little about human well-being when there are numbers that might get sad. The OECD have said that GDP growth could be half the rate originally predicted for this year because of the coronavirus, and that could cause Japan and the Eurozone to slide into recession as well as severely affect China's already weak growth forecast. US Gulf and European futures and stock markets have already fallen, which is what happens when the global economy is based on how a man with a headset is feeling that day. US President and heavily enveloped disease himself, Donald Trump, has insisted that the US has the coronavirus under control and stock markets will take care of themselves, which does sound right as they rarely take care of anyone else. But as with most things Trump says, that's not really based on fact, and especially in the states where the virus risks spreading on account of people avoiding healthcare due to the cost of seeing a doctor, and his administration have cut 80% of the funding for the CDC, the Centre of Disease Control and Prevention, which has been key in how slow they've been to send out testing kits around the country, with only three of the 100 public health centres currently getting them. Trump also cut the emergency response money called the Complex Crisis Fund, specifically for use in the event of a crisis much like this, though maybe he was concerned that that $30 million pot would just be used up every time he tweeted. And in 2018, the Donald also announced massive cuts in reduced health spending, so there's every chance that it'll only be a matter of days before America becomes like the walking dead, and the next presidential election will simply be between the few that have survived, and when all the current candidates are over 70, it's really not looking great for them. Which brings us to the UK. 
Are we, as the government insists, actually prepared for a coronavirus outbreak when the NHS has only just got over its worst winter yet? Since the last big pandemic in the UK, swine flu in 2009-10, the NHS has lost a lot of staff and funding. Do you remember that? When people said it couldn't happen but then swine flu? Well, the NHS actually handled that one pretty damn well, with over 800,000 cases of swine flu but only 26,000 people hospitalised and of that, only 342 died. The health service was praised for its planning and communications, with an independent review stating that it did splendidly, which is the most British response ever. Only 342 dead, splendid, and all sorted in time for tea. But if coronavirus gets that big, well, NHS England has an emergency preparedness, resilience and response framework, which is a very thorough 38-page document, including such highlights as a model to share information listed as major incident declared, exact location, types of incident, hazards present or suspected, access routes that are safe to use, number, type, severity or casualties, and emergency services present and those required. Basically... Uh, That was quite a long-winded way to say the acronym is methane, and it is lovely to know that while the rest of the country shits itself, the NHS is resourceful enough to use the gases emitted to save lives. NHS Scotland and Wales have very similar documents, and in these, a pandemic is Alert Level 4. In the NHS England one, if shit hits the fan that hard, Alert Level 4, then they can take control of all NHS resources in England and then get them all to join together like a combiner bot transformer where all the robots become one massive one and then fuck stuff up. No, sorry, uh, sorry. I mean, all the trusts would work together and then be sensible and not shoot any lasers unless absolutely necessary. But the issue is the pressure the NHS might find itself under if cases rise. The 111 service has already had a 50% increase in calls and found them hard to cope with. And the health secretary, Matt Hancock, has already suggested that retired nurses and doctors could be asked to return to the NHS because nothing would help like people of the age group most at risk from the coronavirus to be surrounded by more people with it. Though I suppose from the Department of Health's point of view, it is one way to save money on pension costs. Downing Street have also rejected calls for the UK to keep the EU's early warning and response system, and they banned Hancock from attending a European meeting to coordinate responses. Though to be fair, judging by Hancock's suggestions so far, maybe that is for the protection of the EU. The government's plan is containment, delay, mitigation and research, only doing the research once they've slowed it down because they've clearly never watched any sort of movie before. But they haven't ruled out having to tell people to work from home, which does feel a little bit like an invitation for the Home Office to deport people to where they think they belong. And there is an emergency battle plan involving closing schools and shutting down public transport. You do have to wonder if those 10 days the Prime Minister wasn't seen during the flooding were just all his way of testing this plan out. The fact is, though, by having a public health service that works with all its various parts to plan for this sort of thing and is accessible by all, we're likely to be okay. even if our government are more excited about issuing the EU over preventing deaths. The concern is, though, if the NHS does handle this, that's proof that it can still boss a virus without any extra funding. And if it doesn't handle this, then there'll be less patience to put a strain on it, so potentially it's going to lose more funding either way. Hopefully in the upcoming budget, more money will be promised in order to make sure we don't replicate 28 days later sometime soon, forcing us all to find other excuses to avoid going out. One interesting plus side of the virus, though, apart from being able to shout coronavirus every time someone sneezes, is that pollution levels in China have massively dropped since the outbreak due to a stopping of nearly all factory activity. All I'm saying is that maybe those otters are eco-terrorists and if Extinction Rebellion really want to make a difference, maybe they should stop washing their hands and go around rubbing them on Captain Birdseye packets instead. And now, back to Laurie. It's interesting, sort of, as you explain it. I mean, we, you know, we are in very much a blame culture where 
as you pointed out, a lot of the things that make people working class or, or the definition of working class now are structural. They're structural issues, but we are told that they are the issues of a certain certain people coming here and taking all the jobs. Or you know, or we're now there's a lot of it about age as well that it's all millennials being whiny and wasting their money on avocados um, rather than. You know, actually, there isn't as much access to work for young people um, and, you know, <laughs> old people, um, sort of BME people have got less access to certain services. So it's it just sort of feels like it's almost a distraction rather, you know, make it, making being working class tribal rather than it being a collective issue that quite a lot of people are, are, are struggling with. Yeah, definitely. I think um, this idea of like working class being a tribal thing. And specifically, like white working class, this idea of a, like white working class having to be this um, this cultural identity to be protected, um, kind of like reinforces this idea that there are like competing groups for you know fighting for for a specific set of resources, um, and that the only way you know to kind of like secure your bit is to blame the other people or to make sure that the other people don't have access as much. And there's a really good quote from Wendy Botero um, from one of our reports actually. That was called Who Cares About the White Working Class? Question mark. I invite um, people to check that out if they're interested. Um, is um, We need to start looking, instead of fighting over the scraps under the table, um, we need to start looking at how much the table holds and who really gets to enjoy the feast. Um, and I think, yeah, that encapsulates, um, that encapsulates that, this idea that, you know, blame is is a distraction um and blaming others is a distraction but i think yeah the other thing i would say about about blame um on a personal level is that like it says a lot about the psychology we have as a society and blame you know even if you think about like children um is a very kind of like instinctive natural way to behave when when you're trying to face something that's vulnerable for you or something facing something that is making you hang angry um it's it's oftentimes easier to kind of like look outward um and project your anger onto something else than to actually to actually you know address it in other ways and what that says is that there is there is a lot of unresolved anger and frustration and um and genuine fear in the society we live in. And I think we live in a scary world and I don't blame people for being angry <laughs> and confused um, and, and having resentment. Um, but I think, yeah, we need to start, we need to, to find ways to, to channel that resentment and um, in, in other ways uh, and in healthier ways. Um, and I think one, one way of doing that, one healing way of doing that is to start really look at the connections we have uh, with people in our lives and, and the conversations we're having with them and recreating this sense of togetherness. Um, like I think what we have when like, you know, so many spaces, um, so many shared spaces for democracy and politics and like open conversation and accountability are, are like taking away, taken away from people, whether because of like that loss of community space, whether because of the strain on unions, whether because the, you know, the atomization of the workplace, um, we live in very isolated, you know, like atomized um, society. And I think it's really important for us to remember that like we share a space together, that we have like a collective stake in what we do about this space that we share together. It's that, you know, that street that we share, it's that school, 
it's that library, you know, it's that tube, whatever. Um, and that's, you know, we need to be able to connect with one another so that we can basically connect the dots of all of the very genuine frustration that many of us face and be able to direct it in the right direction so that change can happen. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you a lot more about um, how we go about doing that. But one thing I just wanted to um, ask about, actually, especially as the, the We Are Ghost report was conducted in London. Um, and one of the things, again, another one of the political narratives at the moment is that everyone wealthy is in London and everywhere else in the country. You know, our politicians need to, what was the comment the other week, you know, be focused on the people who eat pie and chips and not the people who have quinoa or whatever it was. <laughs> and um, and oh, I'm, I'm a North Londoner. I have been. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, and it's very interesting, isn't it? And, and I'm a North Londoner. I have been my whole life and I went to a state school and I've grown up with sort of fairly working class friends. And, you know, and there's been a lot of areas of poverty always around wherever I've lived. And, 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 you know, it doesn't, is London really devoid of anyone other than the very wealthy? Are we really looking? I mean, you mentioned earlier that obviously there are some services you get more access to in London, but is, is that the real divide? Is there this real you know, uh, that everywhere outside of London is where is where real working class people are. Yeah. I mean, I think if anything, like the report we did really showed that, um, you know, that there is a lot of working class people in London and there are a lot of people who are hustling and struggling in London um, to basically, yeah, just try and, and work hard to like build the life they want for themselves. Um, and I think these divides again, like serve a purpose. Um like, I think one thing, always a good example to remember when we try and portray London as, you know, this this capital just full of, like, um, a cosmopolitan elite um, is to remember that Grenfell, the Grenfell Tower, um, where so many people died because of basically um, the government's failure to center the dignity of people uh, when, when putting in place uh, policies and austerity policies specifically, Grenfell Tower was 4.3 miles away from Westminster. It was right in the center of London. It was in North London. Um, it could have as well been on the moon as far of, as, <laughs> as, um, as the establishment um, was concerned in terms of, you know, how these, how policies have shaped what happened um, on, on that night in, in June, 2017. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the, the thing that we do have to be aware of is that there has been there has been an imbalance in terms of how resources have been have been um, kind of like how resource there has been an imbalance in terms of how resources have been allocated in in England. Um, and I think if you come, there are loads of people who, you know, who are struggling in London who are working class um, and who live in London, obviously. Um, but because it's it's a capital city, there's also a lot of, you know, there's a lot of funding opportunities that you may have access to here that you wouldn't have access to elsewhere in the country. There's a lot of, um, you know, even in a way going to um, university in a way may be easier because you will have access to like the open day is more easier because you're just in that place where everything, you know, is buzzing constantly. And I think that can, you know, if you come from a disadvantaged background, you can have access to these, to these opportunities easier than if you were elsewhere. And I think that absolutely doesn't erase all of the other inequalities that exist in, within London. And it's one of the most unequal cities in the world. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we can like hopefully try and hold these contradictions. Like it is, it is, 
in a way, there are more resources technically in London than elsewhere in the country. And that's unjust. And I think, you know, wherever you live in the country, you should be able to have access to, you know, certain things to to go by in life. Um, but I think we need to be really careful of, of this idea that London is just full of these undeserving people. <laughs> uh, they're privileged. Um, either the other side of that is that, you know, London is full of undeserving people because either people are too privileged and London is full of, you know, elitist people, whatever, or the idea that London is full of undeserving minorities. And that's the other side of the coin within that narrative is that London is full of, you know, um, people who come from migration communities, um, migrant communities, people um, of color. And that's somehow this idea, this very deeply ingrained idea that you wouldn't say it out loud, but, you know, what's there underneath is that these people don't deserve the resources as much as the real British people, quote, unquote, um, you know, deserve it. The people who eat, who eat like whatever you said, like chips and, and pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pie and chips, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and again, like that serves a function. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a discourse that serves a function. It's, it's another, you know, another frame for that same divide of, you know, some working class people are more deserving than others. Therefore, it's okay to cut support um, across the board because, you know, we're prioritizing a specific group of people and that, yeah, that uh, that just hasn't made people's lives better, unfortunately. Okay, so in which case, the most important question, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, one of the ways that, that we can heal as a kind of nation or as the working class uh, can heal um, is to connect. Um, but, you know, also I'm going to start my own personal campaign about the fact that we do eat pie and chips in London. It's very important. Um, but what steps um, do, what steps should be taken really to address the way that we label inequality, um, especially as we have a government and a political narrative that doesn't really seem that keen to do it yeah i think um i think it's incredibly important that we each each of us each and every single one of us having conversations about politics um or about society with you know our loved ones with our families with our cousins with our teachers um we need to start owning our stick in that narrative uh, because we shape it every day all of us um and to to understand that the language that we use is used for it can be used for a particular purpose and and it's it can fuel um you know when we buy into a certain idea of you know certain parts of of society being more deserving than others or certain parts of the working class being more deserving than others we justify policies um that that can go very far in dehumanizing people and i think this is something we have um, we have to remember it is it is partly because we've had such a toxic discourse around migration, for instance, that it is possible for the government to basically uh, keep deporting people uh, to Jamaica. This happened on um, February 11th, which was just a few days ago. Um, people who, you know, many of them have lived here for most of their lives, um, have served um, their time for some of them who who had um, sentences and and who are facing differential treatments, partly because we have had a society that for so long used language that justified the idea that you know it was okay for for certain people in society to be treated in that way. Um, and so I think we need to basically start um, owning our stake in in the language that we use and in how in how we can shape that narrative together. Um, and we have some tools um, that we put in place at, at Running Me Then Class to support people in doing that. And, you know, when we have conversation about class disadvantage, about 
um, racial injustice? How can we do it in ways that build solidarity across difference? Because um, I think that's that's what we really need to, to be doing at the moment um, in the face of, I think, quite a scary political landscape um, is to be able to reconnect with one another across our differences um, and to understand that we are not our position in society. We haven't like necessarily chosen that. Um, we are people who have a story, who have a voice, who have agency as they go by in life. And we're people who are sharing space with one another and we're people who have a stake in what that space looks like. And actually, you know, whether you're, you know, middle class person, um, you know, with loads of money or like a working class person or, you know, you're white or or you're not or you were born here or somewhere else and, you know, whatever accent you may have. Um, it's about the kind of space that we want to share together. It's about the kind of society we want to we want to be in. And there's there's something incredibly beautiful about people um, being able to to reconnect around that shared stake. Um, and I think that it doesn't mean you don't acknowledge the kind of like inequalities that exist between different people. And actually, it's like absolutely crucial to do that so that people feel safe coming together is, you know, so that we can acknowledge that. Yeah, actually, you know, I have access to something that this other person right there doesn't have access to. And that's not fair. Um, and I can take my responsibility in relation to that. And, you know, and I can be my agency to shift things and, and to make things um, be different. And I think that we need to start um, talking openly about our differences, uh, not as threats. You know, I think in, in a lot of political spaces, um, we feel like we're walking on eggshells because, you know, we don't know what language we use and we don't, we don't know if we're going to, you know, say something wrong or if, you know, being privileged will mean like we're, we're a terrible person or whatever. Um, and I think it's, it's more powerful to be able to like, you know, understand our differences, not, at, not our differences, not as threats, but as teachers um, and relearning to be to be curious about about the people we share space with um, on a daily basis. And again, I guess it's like that balance to strike between learning how to, to build solidarity across difference. But at the same time, to build that solidarity, you absolutely need to to acknowledge um, that the space we share is full of these inequalities that mean that some people, you know, have access to things that other people don't along race, along class, along migration status, along age. Um, but that, yeah, we all have a stake in, in changing that and we can all be part of a solution. Um, but that will take that will take togetherness um, and to, to build that to get togetherness. We need to start being able to to talk about our differences and to like gather around our differences in ways um, that are nurturing, yeah, and in ways that are that build solidarity, basically, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And and again, I'm still certain there's a campaign to do with everyone eats pie and chips somewhere involved in there. And uh, we can yeah. unify everyone around that. I mean, everyone likes it. Who doesn't? Um, so, um, thanks so much uh, for speaking with me today. And I've got one more question, which is something that I ask all the interviews we have on this show, um, which is that apart from yourself and the Running Me Trust and the class think tank that you work with, um, who else should listeners check out in terms of sites, writers, campaigns um, on institutional prejudice? Um, uh, who are the people that you go to? Um, just a few campaigns uh, that I flag that I think directly connect to this conversation that we're having. There's this campaign that just started 
um, led by Women for Refugee Women and a bunch of other um, migrant-focused organizations. Uh, and the hashtag is Sisters, Not Strangers. Um, and I went to their conference on Friday. It was absolutely beautiful, just people um, gathering around around that that truth that um, we share space um, we share space with with people and um, every day and yeah the government is is basically making some of us destitute um, and we have we have a stake in being able to to reach out and, and show solidarity um, for refugee women and migrant women and any uh, person who you know is facing destitution or facing hardship um so definitely yeah hashtag sisters not strangers uh, if people want to check that out that campaign on social media i'd also flag um if we did this which is a campaign um from reclaim which is an organization working with young working class people um based in i think they're based in manchester uh, they're the ones that did the brilliant, brilliant video around the Absolutely. election time, didn't yes, they? Yes. Yeah, yes. which was so good. Yeah, I yeah, need, I thought I recognised name. Yeah, I think like we don't need you know fancy, fancy resources to know what it's like to come to come together like across our differences. I think the video that they did, um, the video that Reclaim did um, around around the campaign was a perfect example of what it looks like to talk about race and talk about class alongside one another. Um, and to focus on the establishment that is like, you know, keeping certain people out, um, keeping certain people away from power and away from, from having a voice. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend people to check that out. Hashtag if we did this, hashtag vote love. <laughs> and just generally the work that Reclaim is doing around these issues is, is really powerful. Um, for people who are interested in like digging more in the intersection of race and class and the conversation, um, how that conversation has like taken shape in Britain. I'd also suggest Akala's book, um, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire. And it's like, it's really, really well written. And it's kind of, it just tells a story of, um, of basically Akala, you know, being mixed race and growing up in London with a working class white mom um, and also that Jamaican background kind of like unpacking, you know, what that looked like. Um, and connecting, you know, that very relatable like personal experience to 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 the bigger to the bigger picture. And um, I would also say check out um, the conference that Class is putting out. Um, Class is the Center for Labor and Social Studies, and it's one of the organizations I work for. And um, they are organizing a conference called Grow, which stands for Gather, Resist, Organize, and Win. And it's a conference um, that's basically bringing people together um, across all sorts of walks of lives and backgrounds um, to think about what does it mean for us to gather in the face of, um, of a government that doesn't seem to be standing up for many of us. <laughs> um, and what does it mean to resist and what are the different ways in which we can organize to push back against, you know, policies that are harming, um, that are harming us right now, um, harming communities. And that's going to be on the 25th of April. It's the Grow Conference. And then, yeah, if you're just curious um, about, about that, if you're curious about the report that we did on race and class and, you know, hearing about all of the stories that people shared with us on what, what it meant like for them not to have that safety net um, and um, what that meant for them 
to to be working class and and all of that, I definitely suggest um, having a read at the report. It's full of quotes, as uh, so you can kind of just like scheme through it, just reading the quotes and still get a sense of of you know what the conversation was um, was about. Um, and to check out the race and class um, messaging toolkit that we put out as a result of of doing that work, which is basically giving people tools to talk about race and class. Um, differently and to, to be able to talk about inequality um, in ways that build solidarity across difference. We have a little video that's called um, We All Deserve Our Fair Share, kind of explaining how dog whistle um, works, you know, like when you, you know, that culture of blame that we we're talking about earlier, how that cultural blame, culture of blame works um, and, and, and what's, um, what function it serves and stuff. It's a little um, video on social media and alongside that we have um, resources um, to have the conversation about race and class. So a messaging checklist, um, which kind of, it's kind of like 10 bullet points um, on, you know, what to say, you know, on race and class and on like what's going wrong right now in terms of, um, in terms of inequality around race and class and how to say it. Um, kind of like building on what we know, the kind of like framing and messaging expertise that that we draw, that we have drawn over the years in terms of you know what lands best um, in people's in people's minds when we're trying to to have that conversation, to have the argument. Sometimes it's on the doorstep when you're campaigning. Um, these resources were definitely like used in in campaigning over the election. Um, and we have Everyday Guide to Challenge Divide and Rule Narratives, which is the last bit of that toolkit, um, which is in a way like more directed at um, the general public. So if like listeners are interested in, in you know, how divide and rule um, works and how to challenge that, I definitely recommend checking that out. And it's, you know, what do you do when you have your gran or your cousin or even your partner who says something slightly racist or, you know, something that's really... Um, prejudicial towards working class people or something that's, um, again, kind of like blaming immigrants. What do you do? How do you have that conversation with people so that we don't lose more, um, more and more people in our lives to, to that culture of blame that, that basically does not lead us anywhere? And so it's, yeah, really kind of like practical like tips and advice on, on um what do you do when people say certain things and the things we need to say as a result so that um, we push back more and more effectively um, against these narratives that's, that are yeah, harming all of us and, and most specifically the groups who are on the front line of that prejudice, people of color, people with migration backgrounds, um, people who come from working class backgrounds. Thanks so much to Laurie for that. Uh, you can find the Running Mead Trust at runningmeadtrust.org or at Running Mead Trust on Twitter and they're on Facebook too. Uh, Class Think Tank can be found at classonline.org.uk on Facebook or at Class Think Tank on Twitter and I'll put all those links in the podcast blurb too. Since we spoke, Laurie has actually moved to a new job and they now work for Platform London who are all about building an energy democracy. What does that mean? Uh, we'll go and see at platformlondon.org. And as I said, I'll pop that in the pod blurb as well as one of the Running Mead videos that Laurie mentioned too. 
Um, if you've got a suggestion for who to interview or someone suggestive I should speak to, I mean, the latter isn't all that helpful, but please send the former by getting in touch at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write on a towel and let a snake eat it, and then as it's pulled out by a team of vets on a viral video, I'll miss your suggestion as I'll be too busy retching to have a look. As always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. For those of you that made it all the way to the end, Team Finitum. No, wait, that's still, that's really shit, isn't it? Team Climax. No, God, no, that is awful. Anyway, for those of you that do listen to this bit, here is this week's top secret political fact as a reward. Are you ready? It is quite a stunner this week, so get prepared. Former MP for Meridian and former Environment Secretary Caroline Spellman can't. She spells it M-O-N. She can spell everything else, just not man. It's really weird. She calls it the Isle of Mon or Supermon. Yeah, so uh, there you go. Priceless stuff, uh, mainly because it's free. Uh, And all deservedly revealed to you loyal listeners for sticking around for this last bit of the show. Gold, gold stuff. And don't forget, should you enjoy this Ordal malarkey, then please do tell other people to listen and subscribe. And should you also feel so inclined, please pop a review on Apple Podcasts or other review-friendly pod apps, or even donate a quid or two to the Kofi or Patreon. So says my agent. Yeah, cheers, and that's Acast for pod hosting, my brother the last sceptic for musicness, Cat Day for the linear liner notes, and Mushy Bees for paint wrangling. This will be back next week when the government announces its new method of ridding the UK of coronavirus is to be optimistic about it, saying that anyone who complains about dying from it is unpatriotic. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Matt Hancock's Handwashing Singalongs. Need some fancy tunes while you exfoliate your fingers so hard you reach bone? Forget about the coronavirus as you belt out Take My Breath Away, MC Hammer's Can't Touch This, or Van Halen's Source of Infection. Before you know it, every germ on your body will have given up just to stop hearing your shitty home karaoke. Either that or you'll be so full of ill you'll be coughing too hard to sing anyway. Hancock's Handwashing Singalongs for when you can't cater for a soapy finger without some yodelling. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.